message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. But I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. Uh, As always, we're glad you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning on this unusual morning. But if you've got a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, as always, our young disciples, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon this morning. First, be listening for what the word cultivate means. What does the word cultivate mean? Second, be listening for a story about a ski trip. A story about a ski trip. And third, as you're driving home this afternoon or this morning, I want you to tell your parents why community is important. Why is community important? Well, this is the portion of our service where we open the Bible in hopes of understanding what it says and how it applies to our lives. And over the next few weeks, we'll be spending time considering the Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. And as you've likely experienced over the past few weeks, this book is a bit strange. It's discomforting. It can be unsettling. And I've been a bit surprised by how people have resonated so far with the message of this book. But maybe it shouldn't come as a surprise because we increasingly live in a culture that values authenticity. It's become a buzzword in our culture. And it makes sense that we'd appreciate the authenticity of this book, doesn't it? In Ecclesiastes, we have a preacher calling it like it is. He's not looking to sugarcoat life. He refuses to gloss over the hard realities that we all experience. This book invites us to honestly face reality and the devastating effects of sin that we encounter in this world. It's a sobering book. And as we journey through life, we don't always know what to do. We don't always know what to say. We don't always know how to make sense of what we're experiencing. Some of you know very well that some things in life can't be fixed. That life doesn't work as formulaically as we'd like it to. And Ecclesiastes is a strangely comforting book that seeks to give us some categories a perspective as we encounter the harsh realities of life in this fallen world. Ecclesiastes paints a picture of what life looks like under the sun. Post-Genesis 3, after the fall, it's a description of what life is like in a world marred and vandalized by sin. It's a book that takes the reality of sin very seriously. And it explores in depth the damage that sin has done in our lives and in this world. And it's counterintuitively encouraging that this book is unapologetically in the scriptures. And we're going to pick back up this morning by considering the preacher's words from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. You follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun." Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. 
The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together and keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And if though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder how many of you enjoy gardening and landscaping. It can certainly be a difficult task to keep plants and even grass alive in the midst of the heat and drought that we often experience in the summer months here in South Texas. Well, I'm not a big gardener, but I do appreciate the beauty that flowers and plants can bring to a setting. In our home, the one who normally takes care of the plants is Rachel. In fact, this past week, she woke up and thought that she felt a cool breeze. Can you believe that? So she started to tackle the flower bed in our backyard, spending time pulling weeds and watering the plants in that garden. Needless to say, that cool breeze didn't last very long, if there even was one there to begin with. But she did use the inspiration that morning in the cool breeze to cultivate that small part of our yard for just a little bit. Cultivate. Cultivation. It means to develop or to improve something. And it's a great word. I love the word cultivate. It's good not only for gardening, but also for how we think about our lives and our hearts. I wonder if you've ever considered that we're all developing certain habits and desires in our lives. We're all nurturing certain principles and values in our hearts. You might say when it comes to who we are and how we seek to follow Jesus, we're all cultivating something. And the idea of cultivation gives us a good controlling image for how we might consider our passage this morning. The preacher is inviting us to ask the question, what are you cultivating? What are you cultivating? As you live in the midst of this fallen world, what's being developed and nurtured in your heart? How are you tending to your affections? How are you shaping what you desire in this world? As we reflect on our passage this morning, I want us to just think about two quick things, which are our two points this morning. I want us to look at cultivating chaos and then turn and just briefly look at cultivating contentment. First, let's consider how the preacher highlights our tendency to cultivate chaos. Well, in our passage this morning, the preacher comes face to face with the harshness of life. It would be hard to find a handful of verses that are more bleak than verses 1 to to 3 of our passage. The preacher looks around at the chaos and the sadness of the world. He looks around at the insanity of sin, and he concludes that it's best to have never been born. He's very realistic. In a sense, he congratulates the dead because at least they're now spared the misery of life that he encounters around every corner. You might remember that the word vanity is an important word through the book of Ecclesiastes. 
And we see it again in our passage this morning. The word literally means mist or vapor or breath. A synonym could be meaningless. As the preacher looks around the world in search of satisfaction and fulfillment, he comes to the same conclusion over and over again that all things are meaningless. It's all futility. It's all a wisp of breath that's fleeting. And as he's done before this morning, the preacher highlights paths that lead to what he would call vanity at the end of the day. The preacher shows us what it looks like to cultivate chaos in this world. He shows us that we're cultivating chaos when we nurture envy and when we nurture toil in our lives. The first thing the preacher warns against cultivating is envy. You see it in verse 4, look at it, where the preacher writes, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. How much of our lives are driven by envy? I think we could make the case that because envy can be so subtle, it's more than we think. Even if it's not explicit envy of another person, we do often move through life in a state of comparison, which is really the fruit of envy if you think about it. Envy is really rivalry, it's competition, it's comparison, and it can be a silent killer of community and love. Now, we might quibble with verse 4 and say, look, it's not all bad to be motivated by being better than the next option. I mean, we want companies to make better products than the next one. A little healthy competition can be a good thing. It never hurt anyone. But even if we might want to nuance the idea of healthy competition, it has to be conceded, I think, that too much of our effort and energy in life is often motivated by comparison by outshining the other, by getting ahead of the next person. You can think of this in all areas. I mean, low-hanging fruit is material possessions. We look at the material possessions of our neighbors and we begin to envy. We look at how well-behaved our neighbor's children are and we begin to envy. We look at how effortless our neighbor's marriage seems to be and we begin to envy. We don't like when another person's success exposes our lack, when another outshines us. And if we're in a state of constant comparison, it's a recipe for dejection when you don't measure up, when you fall behind, or it can be a recipe for inflated pride and contempt when we begin to look at others and wonder why they can't get their act together in life like we have. It's vanity, it's futile, it's meaningless to cultivate envy. Next, the preacher warns against cultivating toil. We see this in verse 5 where the preacher writes, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And then again in verses 7 and 8 where we read, Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. The preacher is highlighting two extremes, both idle laziness and frantic busyness. And we can pursue pleasure by avoiding hard work, by being lazy. And that's a recurring theme that we find in the wisdom literature of the scriptures. Laziness is a way of harming your neighbor. 
It, It leads to having nothing to offer, nothing to give back. And the preacher says that a lazy person is gonna eventually harm themselves. Their cupboard is bare. They've got no money to buy food. And so they have nothing left to eat but their own flesh. He means what he says here. They deteriorate due to their work ethic, ruining themselves. The preacher warns against laziness. He says, you're called to work hard, but it does require wisdom to balance. Don't you know that? You likely know how easy it is to fall prey to the other side of the pendulum, which is frantic busyness, which is what the preacher highlights in verses 7 to 8. While the lazy person might need to spend more time at the office... It's vanity, it's futile, it's meaninglessness to spend your entire life working for riches, chasing prize after pointless prize. We're not sure if the person the preacher describes in these verses had a family, but he might as well not have had one, or he won't have them very long due to his frantic busyness, you might say. The preacher invites us to ask the question, why are you so busy? What are you really working for? And it reminds me of a story I heard from another pastor this past week who said that in all his years of ministry, he's never had a person in his study in tears telling him that they hated their dad because he dropped them off at school in a beat up old car and it was so embarrassing that they've never been able to forgive him. But he has met plenty of people whose dad drove a $100,000 plus car and didn't experience any love from that man. He says he's never heard someone come in and say they hate their dad or their mom because they didn't pay for the school ski trip. But he has met dozens of people whose parents could pay for the whole school ski trip, yet didn't have time to spend and get to know their child. I love how one commentator puts it when he says, it's possible to know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. What is most valuable in your life? Whether you work at the office or at home or in a classroom or at the hospital, are you chasing after the wind? Are you caught up in the rat race, you might say? It's an unhappy business, according to the preacher, to cultivate riches at the expense of relationship. So we see that cultivating busyness and laziness, it's vain, it's meaningless, it's futile. Now, you might start to be thinking, okay, I can see what the preacher's saying. I even agree with him, but where's the hope? Well, the hope comes as the preacher encourages us to cultivate contentment. The preacher paints a middle road for us, another way to engage life, you might say. It's not the quest for power and prestige, and it's not giving up and staying in bed. It's somewhere in the middle. It's enjoying what God has given you. It's embracing your boundaries. It's recognizing that you're a limited creature. The preacher invites us to stop chasing after the wind and simply enjoy what God has given you in the present. We will see this theme pop up time and time again through this book. But we learn from this passage that we can cultivate contentment by cultivating quietness in community. Verse 6, it really stands as a beacon of hope in this dark passage. It's a word of sanity in the midst of the chaos. In verse 6, the preacher writes, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Quietness is the way to contentment. In the word quietness here, it means calm, patient, settled down. 
And it's something we experience internally. Even when everything around us is tumultuous and raging, we can have a quietness of soul and it's life-giving. Look, are you a quiet person? I'm not talking about being introverted or extroverted. Are you a quiet, do you, are you a person that knows what quietness of soul is? Do you know that a person can experience internal rest even amidst external turmoil? Quietness of soul is so countercultural in our current moment. Normally, when we get uncomfortable, when we bump up against something that we don't like, we scream and we cry, we cause a scene. We work hard to make sure that we're not taken advantage of. What we normally experience isn't very calm or patient or settled down in life. But did you hear our Old Testament reading from earlier in Psalm 131, where King David, who you got to think likely had his fair share of responsibilities and concerns, a man who knew external turmoil, he paints an attractive picture for us when he says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child, I am content. Isaiah 30 says, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. Quietness of soul is a theme that we see run through the scripture. It's a posture of strength. I mean, do you ever think about what it might look like to cultivate quietness in your life? Over and over and over again in the scriptures, we see that it's where God speaks most normatively, in the quiet spaces. You might remember the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings, where he is tired and hungry, and God speaks to him, but he doesn't speak in the fire or the earthquake or the wind. He comes and speaks in a still, small voice, or what you might call a whisper. God normally speaks in a whisper. And what do you need to hear a whisper? Well, you need to be quiet. The preacher's inviting us to cultivate a quietness of heart and mind so that we're receptive to hear the Lord, so that we might experience contentment. He says, better is a handful of quiet than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. And on top of quietness, we see the preacher invite us to cultivate contentment by cultivating community. We read the preacher highlight community in verses 9 through 12, where he talks about two being better than one, because when one person needs to be picked up or kept warm, another person can come and help. And the preacher is picking up on another major theme in the scriptures here, and it's the fact that if you live for others, you have the potential of finding satisfaction. If you live for others, you you will find satisfaction because we were made for others. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian. And I know it's an increasingly strange mindset, but as the people of God, we should readily be able to say, I can't do this alone. Life in community is what we were made for. And do you want to grow this morning? I was thinking about this yesterday. Do you want to grow? It might be easier than you think it is. Plug in and invest in community. It'll stretch you. It'll challenge you. It'll show you how creative God is when it comes to accomplishing his plan of redemption. What can help us endure the vanity and insanity of this world? Community can. 
So we need each other. We were made for others. After all, we follow one who could be called a person or a man for others. Jesus was a man for others. And if we're going to cultivate contentment, we need quietness, we need community. And while we want to be careful not to get ahead of the preacher, we know that what we most need is Jesus himself, the one who is able to give us a quiet soul, the one who invites us to stop striving after the wind and to rest. We need Jesus, the one who makes community possible, the one who came to reconcile relationship with us and God and with one another. We will only be able to cultivate contentment as we focus our gaze on Jesus. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we are thankful for your goodness in our lives, thankful that we can experience rest and quietness and community because of what Jesus has done for us. We pray this morning that as we continue to be shaped and formed and cultivated by your word, that you would conform us more to his image, that we might know your love and that we might serve one another as we faithfully follow you in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.